Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Kelvin. And welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Before we introduce this week's guest, make sure you register to vote and request your mail-in absentee ballot. The election is right around the corner. Make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And be sure to send us a message on Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Our guest this week is Aaron Haynes. Aaron Haynes is a GU Politics Fellow who has spent many years in journalism. She started out at the Atlanta Daily World um, and has gone on to write for major publications such as the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the Associated Press. Currently, Aaron is editor at large for the 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. And she's also an MSNBC contributor. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. You're a journalist by trade. Um, Can you tell us about how you got your start in the field? Sure. Uh, So I was uh, in college down in Atlanta uh, at Oglethorpe University and was thinking about, uh, you know, what my major could possibly be. And journalism seemed to be kind of the natural fit with my skills and interests. Uh, I'm a naturally curious person. I love to learn about new things all the time, every day. And, um, and I love writing. So uh, journalism seemed like it might be a a good idea. And uh, I wrote uh, for my school paper some, but really my first real experience was uh, writing for a black newspaper in Atlanta that published weekly uh, called the Atlanta Daily World. And that was really an amazing experience because it was a small staff and we had to do everything. We had to learn everything about the paper. And so, you know, basically I'm just kind of pounding the pavement, going up and down the street, looking for stories uh, to put in the paper, writing them, uh, you know, we're helping each other edit. It just taught me so much about journalism, but also just about the value of writing about my community and telling stories about the black community uh, as something that was worthy of the front page uh, and, and stories that I didn't really have to explain, you know, kind of why they should be um, stories that we were telling. So. I've taken, I've tried to take that throughout my career. I have written primarily about race, but now get to write about the intersection of race, gender, and politics. And it really is just a dream job. So uh, what prompted you to approach politics through the means of journalism? I think it's kind of the other way around, Kelvin. Like, I, I mean, I was, I was a journalist who also loved politics. I mean, I think I grew up you know, reading my local paper, being aware of, of local politics and being really interested in that. And, and my mom was somebody uh, or is somebody who, who took me and my brother uh, with her to the polls when, when she went to vote when we were growing up. So I understood voting to be a thing that was very uh, important and a thing that grownups did, right? So uh, three days after I turned 18, my mom took me to register to vote and we voted at the same precinct when I was in college. Uh, so, you know, Voting and being uh, politically aware is something that, that I was kind of raised uh, to do and, and something that I, I carried into my adult life. But then, you know, I, I didn't necessarily cover politics as part of my journalism in the first part of my career. Uh, like I said, I mainly wrote about, about race, but, but um, you know, around 2008, uh, when Barack Obama ran for president, uh, the intersection of race and politics kind of came to me for the first time in a real way. And so I covered that historic election and saw the intersection of race and politics and just the role 
that race played in our politics and um, decided that, that that was also a thing that I cared about as a reporter. So going back a little bit uh, about that time that you were a reporter, um, you worked all across the country from Atlanta to Philly, Florida, LA. Yeah. How do those experiences inform the work that you do today? Oh man, uh, so much. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, being in Atlanta, uh, which is my hometown, I got such a good handle on like the legacy of the civil rights movement. Uh, most of the people uh, who worked with Dr. King, uh, who had survived uh, after he was assassinated, uh, lived in Atlanta. And so I got to really be up close uh, to them and to hear from them about what that time was like, about what voter suppression looks like, for example, about what um, racism looked like at that time. And I think those conversations really served me as this modern protest movement has has uh, emerged and as we have seen like the retrenchment of racism and 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 the um what feels like um the loss of, of a lot of the gains that those kinds of people fought for uh so being able to call on kind of those conversations those interviews those stories was super important also, I mean, I just became intimately familiar with, um, you know, black political leadership and black political power at the ballot box. Uh, when, from, when I was in Atlanta, um, covering the black middle class as an electorate uh, really um, helped me to understand voters in a really, in a real way um, and issues of, of disenfranchisement. When I worked in Florida, in Orlando, uh, I worked, uh, and wrote a lot about uh, the issue of felon disenfranchisement, uh, which um, was a whole different area of kind of voter suppression and disenfranchisement that I hadn't really thought a lot about before I lived in that state. Uh, so that was really important. And now, honestly, living in Philadelphia, I've been here for five years, and I think a lot of just being here, knowing this is, you know, the crucible of our democracy, right? I mean, the Constitution uh, in Philadelphia are so intertwined. And so I think a lot about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to participate in our democracy, who gets to protest, like all those kinds of things are on my mind, uh, being in this city and, and, and being able to just even walk on the same cobblestones as like a Benjamin Franklin, like it's, it's, it's kind of wild. So uh, you talked about a bit about being based in Philadelphia, but uh, we'd like to ask, what is it like being involved in national dialogues while based in Philadelphia rather than D.C.? You know, I think it's an advantage because I'm in Pennsylvania, which is a battleground state. Pennsylvania is huge. I mean, obviously, yes, Philadelphia, Philadelphia County is the biggest county in the state uh, by population, but it's so diverse in terms of the electorate. I mean, Western uh, Pennsylvania is not the same as Philadelphia is not even the same as Central Pennsylvania or Eastern Pennsylvania. So like um, being able to talk to voters across the state, hearing from them about the things that they care about, what their priorities are on the ground, how the pandemic is even affecting people, uh, depending on where they live, has been super important and, and figuring out how that's going to factor into how they plan to participate in this election. Uh, you know, it, it's for people who are based in Washington, like they have to come somewhere like here to do that. But I'm already here and I'm already hearing uh, and seeing a lot of, of those conversations, seeing, you know, uh, you know, what yard signs might look like even from street to street. Like that's not something you can do necessarily when you're when you're based in Washington and don't really get outside of that bubble. 
Do you ever take a different approach to cover a national versus a state or even a city issue? Or is it all really just kind of whatever inspires you? That's interesting. I mean, I think, I think what I try to do is, um, you know, there are some local or state races or figures that are, um, do get national attention. And so those are the ones that really kind of attract me uh, from a storytelling perspective. Like I just wrote an article uh, that published in Harper's Bazaar about the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who was in the conversation for the Veep Stakes, but also was like a pretty early um, surrogate of Joe Biden's and also was like a high profile mayor who was going up against a Republican governor during the pandemic. And then she ends up getting coronavirus, right? So like all these things kind of put her in the national spotlight in a way that like most mayors are just not um, you know, normally. And, you know, so that made me want to have a conversation with her kind of about the moment that she found herself in um, as somebody who got on a lot of people's radars that she may not have normally been uh, on to, to tell them a little bit more about who she is and, and, and a little bit more her story. So stories like that, yeah, I, I, I like. I, I think there, there are sometimes local or state figures that do become national. I mean, look at Gretchen Whitmer, right? The governor of Michigan, she was already a figure in this pandemic. And I mean, my goodness, this plot that just, you know, this alleged plot that just uh, got un unveiled this week um, with these FBI and, and state go uh, government arrests is, is really, um, really interesting. And it's, I mean, she's back in the national spotlight. You have clearly covered like many amazing stories, but I have to ask, what is the most interesting story you've ever covered? Oh man, the most interesting story that, you know, that's a, that's a hard one. Cause I mean, at this point, you're right. I've written a lot of stories and I've been really fortunate in my career to have had a front row seat to some pretty amazing things. Um, I will tell you, I miss Florida news a lot, Kelvin. Florida news is wild, right? I mean, like I got to cover an election. I got to cover crazy animal attacks. I got to cover um, hurricanes. Like, I mean, that was that was pretty wild. I mean, covering the, you know, the election of the first black president was not something I ever thought that I would be writing about in my lifetime. Um, the, the nomination of a black woman uh, for vice president was also not something I thought I would cover in my lifetime. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the most, the, the most amazing thing um, that I've done in my career, to be honest, I think is helping to start the newsroom that I'm now a part of, um, which is the 19th. Like, there are so few chances, I think, that people have in their lives to do something that literally nobody else has ever done before and that nobody else will ever do again for the first time. And that is what we're doing. And it is so exciting and it's been so amazing, even in the middle of a pandemic, like this is not the start that we thought we were gonna have, but it has been uh, really remarkable uh, to do and to see just the response from people who really feel like what we're doing was really urgent and necessary. Can you talk a little bit more, more about the gap that the 19th fills in the wider realm of journalism? Absolutely. So uh, the 19th, for those of you who have not yet uh, seen our fantastic uh, journalism, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom that is at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. And really the reason that we exist is because we are attempting to do no less than change the narrative around the way gender is discussed in, in politics and in political journalism. 
we know that women are the majority of the electorate, they're the majority of the US workforce and the majority of the US population, but too often women are discussed as a special interest group, especially when it comes to being voters. And we disagree with that. Uh, we believe that all issues are women's issues and that, um, you know, we should be talking about women the same way that we talk about, frankly, white male voters, you know, as rural, as, as educated, as concerned about the economy or healthcare or uh, the Supreme Court, you know, women care about a lot of, of things and, and they are also politically active and they should be reflected as such and not just, you know, on the coast, but, but across this country. And so um, the other problem, um, you know, aside from the coverage is the representation in political journalism. I mean, as we sit here today, uh, two thirds of the stories that are, that are um, written and conceived of are coming from people who are mostly white, mostly male or both. And that's simply unacceptable to us given the demographics of this country. And so, you know, we see ourselves as game changers who want things to be different in our industry and in, um, American political journalism, and we really believed that the best and fastest way to fix that was to start over. You spent a considerable part of your career emphasizing the importance of personal narratives, particularly as they pertain to both race and gender. How have you learned to tell these stories in a way that is compelling for a broader and often political audience? Oh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I think I have to go back to my experience at the Atlanta Daily World because I really learned to value my lived experience as an asset to my journalism as opposed to a liability like bringing that to the work has really helped me to see stories that other people don't always see and to frame them um, differently. And I think that that's important. Uh, while I think I am mainly trying to bear witness for my community to take uh, you know, folks, especially marginalized folks into places and spaces that they wouldn't normally get to go to. Um, I do understand that my journalism does resonate even outside of my community. And that is meaningful to me as well, uh, because, you know, I don't think that we are doing enough to foster a kind of civil dialogue and understanding as a society. And I think that journalism is a vehicle for doing that. Uh, and, and I think that it's a needed vehicle, especially now uh, with our polarized you know, political climate. Um, I, I think that, that journalism is a way to have a lot of the conversations that I think people, I, I know they want to have them because I hear that from our members and from our readers all the time. You know, People who are saying that they feel seen and heard for the first time in our coverage or people who are able to share our stories with people who maybe don't share the same ideology as them to start a conversation that they otherwise wouldn't be able to have. What narratives have you seen develop through the COVID-19 crisis and how have you approached reporting during this very uncertain time? Oh man, Haley, let me tell you, um, the pandemic is absolutely political. Let me just start there. Um, because the daily reality of COVID-19, whether you ever get sick or not, is, is touching millions of Americans, right? Um, you know, at the beginning of this year, I was ready to cover the 2020 election, the most consequential election that I thought I was ever going to cover already, right? And 
I was really excited. I mean, if you're a political journalist, like this was going to be like the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Olympics all rolled into one. And, you know, by the time we got to Super Tuesday, we were pretty much off the campaign trail. I had to go virtual because the World Health Organization had declared this global pandemic. And, you know, I think a lot of political journalists were kind of just like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I was supposed to cover the election and the election went away. But for us at the 19th, we realized that this pandemic was going to be disproportionately impacting women. Again, the majority of the US workforce, the majority of the population, but also what we saw was that they are the majority of the people who are being disproportionately impacted by and responding to coronavirus as the, most of the frontline workers, most of the essential workers, most of the caregivers, whether it's of children or of, of elderly folks, um, struggling to balance career and, and uh, home life. Um, you know, so there were absolutely so many more stories for us to tell about how this was affecting, you know, more than half of, of um, the U.S. population. And then, of course, when we finally do kind of pivot back to the 2020 election, like it intersected with that as well. Like we're talking to women voters who are saying that the pandemic and thinking about the pandemic has influenced their participation in this democracy, not just in terms of voting, but in terms of volunteering, in terms of donating, in terms of helping to organize, right? Um, we're seeing all of that. And so um, the pandemic has really been, um, like I said, I mean, I already knew it was going to be kind of an extraordinary and consequential year, but um, politically, but, but, but the pandemic has added a layer to that that even I could not have anticipated. What is one story you've worked on that you wish received more attention? Hmm. That's hard because, I mean, I honestly was very fortunate um, to have spent a lot of my career at the largest and oldest news gathering organization in the world, the Associated Press. So like if I hit the button on a story, it usually hit hundreds of, of sites um, every time. And I say that because it was deeply gratifying to me to be able to write stories, particularly about race, that went to places where maybe the newsroom wasn't that diverse or the community wasn't that diverse. And so people were able to learn things that maybe they wouldn't have had a chance to learn uh, just based on where they lived and, and the demographics of those communities. Um, I will tell you a story that I'm very glad did get the attention that I wanted it to get. And that was, um, the first national story about uh, Breonna Taylor and her case, uh, which I wrote uh, for the 19th and uh, published uh, with our publishing partner before we got our own website, The Washington Post. And, you know, that came about um, the Ahmaud Arbery case had, had happened and that was starting to get a lot of attention. People were, you know, hashtagging, you know, about running with Ahmaud or jogging with Ahmaud. And, and so that was getting a lot of attention and rightly so, because I mean, that was a tragic situation that needed uh, to get beyond kind of that local community in terms of journalism coverage uh, and public attention. But um, the um, attorney for Breonna Taylor's family, Ben Crump called me uh, and we'd, we'd been working together since like Trayvon Martin. So like going back to 2012, unfortunately there've been way too many of these cases. So like we know each other pretty well. And he calls me and he says, look, uh, I got a case out of Louisville. And he tells me that just egregious case of what happened to Brianna. And then he tells me that it had happened two months before and that nobody was writing about it outside of Louisville. And I was just like, well, 
that's ridiculous. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, like we're trying to get more attention on this. We've got the family. Uh, you know, we're hoping that you would want to talk to them. And I'm like, absolutely. Like that, yes. Like that is absolutely a story that the 19th would and should tell uh, because not only because, I mean, this, this woman was an essential worker. Like she should have been a headline in the pandemic uh, and she wasn't, but like um, it just kind of spotlights the reality that black women, uh, when this happens to them, I mean, they also are targeted um, and, and they are part of the Black Lives Matter story, but they, there's, because it happens less frequently to black women, they don't always get the attention that black men get when these, when these things happen to them. And so I wanted to do um, my part to make sure that this story, uh, which I thought was absolutely newsworthy and absolutely a national story, uh, was told. And so I did that. And I mean, she wasn't really trending that much before um, I wrote my story, but after that, uh, she did start trending. Uh, with, uh, you know, my story and, and I think the work of, of activists who have been trying to push it out. Um, and so I was really, I was really, like, that felt like, you know, the kind of story that I am in journalism to, to tell. Thank you for your coverage of, of those events and for shedding light on these stories that really need to be told at a national level. And, and clearly you've gotten the attention of several notable people in doing so throughout your career. Uh, including vice presidential candidates and senators. Um, you've spoken with Kamala Harris, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Elizabeth Warren, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so what is it like interviewing these very powerful people? Oh man, uh, well, you know, um, it's it's interesting and it's interesting, it really is interesting to get to talk to them through um, a gender lens. I'm thinking about, you know, talking to Senator Warren or talking to Senator Klobuchar or, or Senator Harris um, during the Veep sex process, but also during the pandemic, also during the National Reckoning on Race. Uh, I'll tell you though, uh, I mean, obviously a high point of this year was getting the first sit down interview with Senator Harris after she was named, you know, the vice presidential nominee, which we did at our virtual summit for the 19th. And I will tell you, like, I mean, I was definitely somebody who thought like from day one that Kamala Harris was going to be the VP nominee. Um, I know there were a lot of women, very qualified, capable, talented, whose names were in the conversation, but like just having covered her her career and covered her um, primary run, um, you know, for president, I, I, it just, it felt to me like she just checked a lot of the boxes, even as the criteria was shifting for like what Joe Biden maybe was looking for. It just felt like she was going to be it. And so like, um, you know, as we were planning our summit, maybe like six weeks out, we were trying to think of who was going to be in the lineup. And I was like, we got to lock down Kamala Harris, you guys. And they were like, what? And I was like, I mean, whether she is the nominee or not, like she should be part of this um, conversation. But I think she's going to be the nominee. And I think that, you know, this is a gamble that could pay off for us. So, you know, we asked her office. They said they would, they would um, be a part of our summit, uh, which we were super excited about. What I did not predict was that we wouldn't have a VP nominee until the week of our summit. But like, she was named the nominee that Tuesday. She was supposed to be the keynote speaker for our summit that Friday. She was closing out our summit. And so, of course, when she's named the nominee that week, I was like, oh man, like there's no way she's gonna still come on here and talk to us, right? Not only did she absolutely hold that commitment, but like, 
she also talked to us for the entire 30 minutes that she had committed to. And a 30 minute interview with a politician, just so you know, is like <laughs> rare. It is so rare. Um, and so we, you know, so we had that and, and that was huge for us as a newsroom. It was huge for me personally as a journalist and somebody who's covered this campaign uh, for a year and a half. Like it, that really felt like um, just such a tremendous payoff for me and, and for the work that I've been doing and the groundwork that I'd laid like over the past year, like for that to have happened, like, yeah, that was, that was definitely a high, high moment in the, in the campaign cycle. Zooming out, you've touched on your thoughts on the state of diversity in journalism. So how do you think it can improve? Well, I think people have to be intentional. Newsroom leaders have to be intentional about making change. Like we know what needs to be done. We know what the problems are. Uh, we just have to be committed to the solutions. I mean, I think um, obviously being at the 19th and, and starting a brand new newsroom, uh, we have already created one of the most diverse newsrooms in this country and we're not even a year old. So like we know that it can be done. We know that these candidates are out here, that they're qualified people uh, that can be working in American newsrooms right now. But but it, it really does take that commitment from newsrooms. And I think that we have an opportunity in this national reckoning on race. I mean, a lot of that has included newsrooms, right? You have um, employees of color who are speaking up, who are saying things need to change here too. And it's not enough for us to just report on, you know, what's going on outside of our walls. We need to talk about what's going on in here and how we can change who we are. And so I think I'm encouraged by that uh, because that feels like a much more urgent conversation than it has felt like in mainstream legacy media. Um, and I, I just hope that they keep going and, and that there is real change uh, coming out of this. Absolutely. And uh, your geopolitics discussion group this semester actually covers a lot of these issues. Can you tell us about it and how it's been going so far? Totally. So yeah, so my discussion group is race, gender and 2020, which is basically an extension of my, my job right now, which is awesome. And uh, it's been great. So far, we, 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 the, the bonus uh, in doing these things in an election year is that you uh, can often, you know, touch on issues of the election in, in, in real time. And so uh, the debates that have happened in the past two weeks have, have really dominated a lot of our conversation. But uh, I'm ex really excited about uh, the discussion group that's coming up this week, uh, racism uh, on the ballot, which is something that I have argued was going to be an issue even before the National Reckoning on Race, um, just seeing uh, the racially charged um, climate of the past four years, uh, I knew that, that especially for black voters, this was going to be an issue. This was going to be something that was going to be on their minds going into November. But I think it's on so many people's minds. Um, right now, um, you saw just such diversity in the protests in cities across this country. A lot of people are trying to think about who and where we are as Americans. And so uh, kind of unpacking some of that is something I'm really looking forward to doing with uh, everybody who comes. So I hope that everybody who's listening is planning to come hang out with us at 7.30 on Wednesday night. You've spent a lot of time interviewing people and are clearly expert at this. What would you have asked yourself if you were in our shoes? That's a good question. You have not been at this for very long and you're a good interviewer. Um, I don't may, I mean, maybe, maybe what... Um, what advice I would have had for, you know, myself as a, you know, a young journalist? Um, or yeah, what would I, what would I have told myself? 
um, knowing all that I know now about this business and my career and, you know, that kind of thing. So if you could talk to your younger self, you know, go back to when you were first starting out, what would you say? <laughs> Honestly, you ain't gonna believe this shit. That's what I would say. <laughs> Cause that's how I wake up feeling most days uh, when it's time to do my job. That's what I would say. Well, we have one final segment here on Fly on the Wall, um, and it's a lighthearted segment called our lightning round. So okay. we're going to ask you three quick questions and hopefully get some quick answers. Okay. What is your favorite kind of dog? My dog, Ginger. She's a Yorkie poodle, 11 pounds of fun. What are you reading right now? Rodham by Curtis Sittenfield. What is your favorite time of year? Oh man, you got me. Oh, my favorite time of year right now is the time we get back out after this vaccine happens and we can be back out in the world, whenever that is. That's a great answer. <laughs> I completely agree. Erin, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Oh my God, this is awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you want to hear more from Erin, make sure you register for her Chief Politics Discussion Group, Race, Gender, and the 2020 Election, on Wednesdays from 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern. Make sure to check the Geopolitics newsletter for the sign-up link or Google Geopolitics Discussion Group. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did or didn't, make sure you follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can reach us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.